The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Amen. Well, today we are at that place of no return. It is too late. The door has shut behind you. You cannot exit out. You cannot hit the eject button. We are fully in to Revelation as it stands right now. Revelation chapter 6, if you have it this morning, we are going to be looking at what is commonly known and what if you go to the plaza, the famous fountain at J.C. Nichols Parkway and Broadway is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Everyone knows what, that's, uh, what that phrase means, but today, God wins, judgment begins. God wins, and judgment begins. I want to let you know, as we said last week, that for the next several weeks, probably extending through the early part of next year, it's going to be tough, and you're going to see and hear things that really make you think, that's not my God, but I encourage you to know that it is your God you're reading about. These things are troubling. This is why most churches are okay to preach, Revelation 1 to 5. We're not better because we're preaching on. I'm just telling you that most churches pull the emergency brake and say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's too hard for our people to hear. It might be, but God's word is put here for our edification and and for his glorification, for all praise to be received to him. So it's going to be hard. I'm going to tell you that. But through everything, God, what? wins. And that's what you need to keep in focus. God wins. If you're able to stand this morning, we're standing on the promises of all things, including hard sections. Would you stand with us as we read Revelation chapter 6 this morning? That's verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And let's read together. And this is, as you recall, the context of this. If you've missed a week, if you've forgotten, it's been busy Pastor Nelson preached on the very first Sunday from Revelation chapter 4. We saw the Father before the throne and the 24 elders and all the angels. Chapter 5, we took a couple weeks, and, and there was no one to break the seal, the scroll of uh, the seals of the scroll. And John was weeping, and, and finally there's someone who came forth, and we know that to be the Lamb of God, the sinless Savior of the world. And last week we looked at the worship that was happening with the saints and the angels and all creation. And I said it again, I'll say it many times today, we needed to see heaven in a party of all victory before we get into what we're about to get into. The Four Horsemen, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And it says, now I, again, that's John, his second vision here, now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And you'll notice this at all of these, by the way, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and the rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he conquered and was conquering. And when he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come, and out of another horse came a bright red, or perhaps your Bible says crimson horse. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So when he opened the third seal, verse 5, I heard the third living creature say, What? Come, And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. 
and do not harm the oil and the wine. So, verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider was death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with a sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by the wild beast of the earth. Told you, it's going to get darker before it gets better. But I want you to remember what we saw in chapter 5. We saw a lamb on a throne, or excuse me, standing by the Father on the throne. God reigns. He is sovereign. He's got this. But God is bringing, much like he did in Jeremiah, if you've been studying with us over these weeks, he's bringing what he said would come to fruition. The big thing for you today, and I'm going to say it before we pray, I will probably be taking a different turn than most of you are used to. We're going to hug it out. We're going to eat it out afterwards in our potluck, all right? But I want you to know there's much charity. I pray that I'm giving to your side and you're giving to my side. It's not about my interpretation, your interpretation. God wins. That's where we're headed with this, all right? Let's pray and let's go before our Lord. May he bless the reading, hearing, and doing of his word this morning. Let's go before him. Father, thank you for the responsibility we have to not only hear the, the, what we would call the positives or the comforting verses, but, Father, also these challenging verses. For, Father, in these challenging verses that are very tough to hear, there is comfort because we know through every nook and cranny of this life that scroll that is being opened is the very book of everything that would come to be. And here it is, Lord, coming to be. And, Lord, as we pray over these things, we thank you that whether we are in the deepest, darkest valley or the highest mountain shielded, that you are still our God. And for me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. And whether I walk by faith, not seeing by sight as those do in heaven, Lord, we know that you are still walking us through exactly where we need to be. So, Father, give us grace in these times, not only about the interpretations of Revelation, but more so that we would see that even in this world, you said that there would be much tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome. May peace be with you. Thank you for those words, Lord. We pray them today, and we pray that we may be stirred to evangelize and share the gospel all the more with all those around us, to share what you have done for us, the victory won, all in Christ alone. We pray these things today and ask them in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, we are in a tough thing, and I opened up a few weeks ago like this, but I think it's worth starting again. We live in a time and a day where even though it is now outlawed to a certain extent where babies are being mass murdered in the womb, we live in a day and an age where gender identity is a problem. And we'll be actually speaking to that next week, taking a break next week from Revelation to talk about gender identity, what God says about it in the Scripture. We're in a place where there is more self-destruction perhaps than ever before. We're in a place in our society where we as a nation are trillions of dollars in debt, so much so that every person has at least $50,000 of debt on their head, and it's being added to $10 every single day. These are just a few selected examples. There are many things that are unbelievable in our nation today, and you look at Revelation 6 and you say, is that time happening now? Are we in those times? And I remind you as well that you could easily write off this nation and write off this world, but God has not written it off. There is still a king who sits upon his throne, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we know he's far mightier than any of the dire circumstances that we find ourselves in today or anything this nation could bring. But it asks the question, what in the world is going on in the world? There's deception. There's deceit. 
there's famines, there's persecution, there's job loss, there's perversion, there's pain, there's persecution, there's burials, there's tribulation, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. And we are here in the midst of it, and we are feeling like we're tossed to and fro, wondering what in the world is going on. May I remind you what Psalm 97 verse 1 says, a phrase you can put up on your wall. If you're into those Bible verse like sticker things, this is a good one. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad and let the distant shores rejoice. The Lord reigns. Put that everywhere you go. He's got this. He's in charge. And as we come, I want you to remember all the things that are going on in these churches. We studied through the summer the, the, the seven real churches in modern-day Turkey. They were undergoing severe persecution, so much so, in fact, that many were losing their lives and their things for the sake of the gospel. But God told them not to lose heart. And the book of Revelation is a reminder to you, it's not a puzzle to solve, but is an encouragement to all churches of all time everywhere to stay the course, to be immovable, always abounding, as Brother Dave read, in the work of the Lord. And today in chapter 6, we're going to see that scroll of chapter 5 opened up, the four horsemen. But the summary is this. He opens a seal and symbolism flies out. He opens a seal and symbolism flies out. He opens a seal and symbolism flies out. We'll get there in a minute. But God is who he is, and he's doing what he's doing. Can I ask you a question? Do these days concern you? They ought to. You ought to feel the weight of these days as a Christian. Do they concern God? Yes, they do. But there's an order and a place. All that will matter in those final days is do you know the Lord? Because that's where revelation is headed, and that's where we're going. The big idea today, if you will, or the, the, the summary of the sermon is that God brings tribulation upon the earth to punish rebels and purify the redeemed. He brings uh, uh, tribulation upon the earth to punish rebels and to purify the redeemed. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He said, tribulation puts muscles on our souls, puts muscles on our souls. Your hard times bring you muscles where people cannot see them. But take heart, Jesus said, in this world you have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Jesus' plan is not always to deliver you from trouble or the things of trouble, but to make things better in the time that you're here. No, not necessarily. John saw his power. John saw his majesty. John saw his love as hope to get through the deepest of trials. And you see, you don't need just a warm, fuzzy Jesus that is part therapist, part life coach, and part warm Linus-like blanket for you. You need a Jesus who is sovereign over all the powers of this world, and nothing changes his plan. And is he a warm comfort to you? You better believe he is, but you better know his power reigns as well. Church, we live in a fallen world, and we live as a result of that with terrible things. And the terrible things that are happening is not the making of God. They are of people that are doing those things. But I want to remind you what Revelation 1 said. If you have your Bible, just look over with me in chapter 1. What did Jesus say about these very things? Revelation 1, 17 and 18. Nelson preached this way back in May. That seems like an eternity ago, doesn't it? Chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I live forevermore. And who has the keys to death in Hades? He does. I have the keys to death and Hades. This morning, I want you to see four things that we can find or know or truths about 
this gospel that is coming, this, uh, or this, this thing that is coming for truths about how God will bring about the tribulation. But before we get there, and this is not on your notes, it's not on the screen, you're welcome to write it down in any blank space you find. There are four ways that we can interpret this in the days ahead. Four ways. Some people say what's happening now in Revelation chapter 6 and onward to 19 has already happened in the first century. It's already done when Israel fell to the Romans in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Some say it's going to happen, but we don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to happen at a great time, the historicist. Most of you in this room have been taught, brought up, or read around people who are teaching that this, Revelation chapter 6, is the start of what many know as the Great Tribulation. Seven years, an antichrist halfway, uh, uh, all sorts of things like that. And the rapture would happen at this moment, right before chapter 6. I will submit to you a minority view, and I'm going to ask for charity as I'm going to give you charity. I grew up leading left behind. I've seen, Nelson, the Thief in the Night, Billy Graham movies. I've seen all TBN last end days movies, as you have most of you. But I'm going to submit to you once again that the idealist position here has hold. We are not just looking, it seems, at events that will happen at a certain time, and seven years later, the clock starts. We are looking at, through the four horsemen, events that have always been happening in cycles time and time and time again throughout all history for all churches in all places, just as the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 were that way. Some of them are in chronological order, these horses are. Some are not. Some give you a different vantage point here and a different vantage point there. The point of it is is that what they went through in the first century is common to all people in all centuries. So that's why John writes this, and God gives him this vision. This might surprise you. If you have read the Left Behind series, if John MacArthur is your podcast buddy, and he is mine in a lot of ways, this is going to differ for you. And for some of you, you're going to be caught up on, the pastor isn't preaching like I've been told before. Don't get caught up on that. You're chasing details. Get caught up in Christ. That's where this is headed. The interpretation is not one that I will take. I'm not taking a dispensationalist premillennial thing, if you want to put it that way. I don't have charts. I'd love charts up here, you know, in those things. But the point is, is that it's intended through all this to show that God is ruling, he's reigning, and he's doing it to encourage you and encourage me. And that's what it's really all about. The church is going to be in suffering. For unbelievers, that means that they are suffering under the wrath of God here on this earth. Romans 1 tells us that. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven, and they continue to suffer under that. Some people will say, this is hell on earth. Friend, this is not hell. Hell will be... Yeah. Indescribable. It is not yet the full wrath of God. But God is bringing rebels to come to the truth, and many of them will, praise God. And you were a rebel once, I was a rebel once, not a Mississippi State rebel NCAA football fans, but a rebel, a God-hating enemy of God. But that will climax at the final judgment. But this book is also for believers, what you're seeing in Revelation 6 through 19, the hard chapters. It is that God is using the same events in everyone's life to bring us closer to him. And for us, God is purifying his church. He's making you and me and all of us more like his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what the life is really all about. The point of it is, God is using same events in everyone's lives as a believer or an unbeliever. 
and he's heard that he knows a lot of people are going to come to him, and they will. So what about these horses? Why does he use horses in Revelation chapter 6? Why not tanks and, you know, bulldozers and, you know, Bob Builder type stuff? I don't know. He used horses. Because in those days, if you heard horses, you've ever seen a stampede, and I never have, but if you hear the horses, the ground shakes, I'm told. And when you see horses coming at you and you're just standing there as a person, you're feeling helpless. And so he uses common imagery as their day. Zechariah uh, 1 through 6 also uses this. Zechariah chapter 6 focuses in on this. But horses are faster and stronger, and they struck terror in the people of those days. And so too in Scripture, horses bring strength, warfare, and dread. And in Revelation 9, we'll see this. Revelation 14, we'll see this. And do you know who comes back in Revelation 19 on a white horse? Jesus himself. Horses are integral to the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to give you some references here. This, again, is not in your notes, but if you want to look these up later, we're not going to have time or space to go through all these. But Leviticus 26, Leviticus 26 is going to be quoted throughout Revelation 6, Ezekiel 14, and Zechariah 6. Leviticus 26, Ezekiel 14, and Zechariah 6. The point of it is, we are not seeing just the start of a stopwatch of seven years of great tribulation. We are seeing God through these horsemen bringing about events that have affected all Christians of all times until kingdom come. You can take me out to the woodshed afterwards, but that's what I'm going to give to you, all right? And now you need to see this, and I want you to see some lessons that we are going to learn through these things. The first lesson I want you to see there is found in verses 1 and 2 through the white horse, is that the gospel will conquer throughout the age. The gospel will conquer throughout all the age. Chapter 6, verse 1. And he says again, I watched when the Lamb, that's Jesus, opened those seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. And on its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Well, what is this? What's happening here? Again, the Lamb of chapter 4 opens the seals. He's in charge. He's in control. He's sovereign over all things. He has all authority and judgment. And now, simply, one of the four living creatures says, come. And this is a, a, a command. This isn't a great suggestion. It isn't like when you tell your dog, or especially your cat, come, and they go off and do their dog or cat thing. Don't try that with a cat. It doesn't work. But these riders here have evil intent. These riders are bringing disaster and destruction and devastation. Events will take place on earth because God's sovereign direction above. And what you need to see first off is what God tells us here is that it is under God's control in verse 1. Notice it is Jesus himself allowing the seals to come. It is under God's control. It is under God's control. Now you say, well, we know all that, but why would he do that? That's, we'll get there perhaps a little bit today. But it is under God's control. All is under him. He is the one who's sending these riders. Notice they didn't come at their own discretion. They came when he said, come. And Christian, can I remind you, you did not find Jesus. Jesus found you. But when he called your name, you certainly came to him. Lazarus, come forth. And what did Lazarus do? He came forth. You were dead in your sin, but when he called your name spiritually, if you will, you came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So too, under the sovereign direction of Christ, they move at his discretion. Notice, secondly there, he's determined to conquer. 
Whoever this white horse rider is, he's determined to conquer. It says in verse 2, and he came conquering and to conquer. And he had two things with him. He had a bow. He had a bow with him. But notice what is not with his bow. Did you notice that? There are no arrows. It's just a bow. It seemingly, specifically, is a bow. And he's wearing a crown on his head, a symbol of authority. Now, I want you to know that in Revelation, these four groups of people wear crowns. Christians wear crowns. Demons wear crowns. Uh, the elders wear crowns, and Satan wears a crown. So who is this rider on a white horse? There are two primary interpretations, but I'm going to tell you my interpretation right here. It's three words. You ready? I don't know. <laughs> you came all this way just to hear those famous words, but that's the truth of the matter. But there are, I'm going to tread lightly here, be honest with you. There's at least seven interpretations people take. Jesus and the Antichrist are the two big ones. So if you mess up one of those, you're on... Go to Jesus if you're going to mess up, right? But who is this guy? Number one interpretation, it could be Jesus. If it is, Jesus is the main reason because the imagery is about Jesus. But that seems weird. Jesus is the one standing by the throne, but he's sending a horse with Jesus on it. How that works. But in Revelation 19, on a white horse, Jesus is wearing crowns. He's conquering. He has the blood of his enemies. He's, if this is Jesus, he's conquering satanic strongholds. He's saving sinners. And while there are tribulations occurring, he's conquering, which is totally true. Is the white horse rider Jesus? Maybe, perhaps, could be. Don't know for sure. Do you know where most people take this? Most people believe that this is the Antichrist. Because in Revelation 12 and 13, Satan attempts to deceive people by imitating Jesus. And so it would seem here, if Jesus is riding a white horse in Revelation 19, then maybe this first rider is the Antichrist himself. Would you write down 1 John 2.18 if you, don't, if you have a pen? 1 John 2.18, look it up later. I'll read it now. Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard the Antichrist, capital A, is coming. So many Antichrist, lowercase a, have come. Do you realize anyone in your life who does not believe in Jesus is an Antichrist, lowercase a? You yourself, I myself, was an Antichrist outside of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. Either you are for my son, Jesus Christ, or you are not. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? So anyone who does not know Jesus is technically, we call them non-Christians, unbelievers, the lost, unregenerate, but really they are anti-Christ. They are against Christ. Does that make sense? Now, it doesn't mean you go up to someone in an evangelist encounter and say, hey, anti-Christ, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. Well, it's true, but that's not the point. What he's saying here is that there's already Antichrist false teachers in the world. And now if this person in Revelation 6, 1 and 2 is the Antichrist, it's because he's coming at some point. Matthew 24, Jesus said, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. There is a warning here. That if this is the Antichrist, he's twisting the truth. Friends, I do not know. I will be honest with you. I debated this. You saw this on Facebook on Monday. You've already know this. I'm okay saying I don't know on certain passages of Scripture. That does not scare me. That does not take away. This is the infallible, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, sufficient word of God. I'm okay with that. I cannot explain to you the Trinity in detail past what the Bible says. And if I do, I'm in some really dangerous analogies and illustrations. Be careful. I'm okay saying I don't know. But one thing I think you can take with this is that 
However you slice this up, God is going to conquer and is conquering. We have a hope. We have a hope that he is going to conquer. We should be filled with expectancy that the Lord will work. We should be filled with expectancy that the Lord will work. And you'll see that up there. Because we know that no matter if this is Jesus or the Antichrist, the one sending him out is the one who's ultimately in charge. Do you see that? Are you expecting him? Do you anticipate this? Are you aware that we're facing the glorious possibility of some of the greatest work of God in our lives in these days? Do you know that no matter what coronavirus brings, and I know on, I know on Facebook people are saying uh, you know, whatever about the coronavirus again. Look, guys, we need to be measured in this life, but we ultimately need to realize that we fear no one but God himself. We take precautions and safety But as we minister, we don't presume to walk on God's grace, but we also expect that he will work. However you take this white horse rider, the gospel will advance through the world. I talked to one of our missionaries this week, and many of you know who that is. I won't say their names or space because this is recorded. And I talked to them about this very thing. And he said, you know, we hold to that promise almost every day. Because the people and the places and situations we face, you could just throw your arms up at. Because there is no hope. But with Christ, even the smallest flicker of light is enough to penetrate the darkness. And praise God, whoever this white horse rider is, in his sovereignty, God sends him forth to conquer and to continue conquering. I don't have it all figured out, and it's okay. But let's go to number two. There is the promise the gospel will advance, but there's also the promise that wars, wars, W-A-R-S, will last until Jesus comes. This is the red horse, seal number two. Look at verse three. He says here, when he opened the second seal, that is Jesus opening that scroll that's uh, of all things, he said, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red, or red, or I think the King James may say crimson in some translations of it. Its rider was permitted, again, permitted. Notice the sovereign releasing of God to the horse rider to take peace from the earth so that they should slay one another, and he was given power to take many lives. You see that he promises as Satan, uh, the the peace promised here uh, uh, is short-lived. It's very short-lived. The rider on the white horse carried a bow with no arrows, but the rider on the red horse carries a sword with death and destruction. And that's the first thing you need to know, verse 3, is that destruction, no matter how you slice this, is inevitable. Destruction is inevitable. It's going to happen. Christ remains in control as the second seal is open. What he opens, no man can shut. What he opens, no man can stop. When God opens a door, no man can close it. When God closes the door, no man can open it. And that's a great thing for you because that's your security of all the promises wrapped up in God. But the reality is, is that the horse of war, the red horse, will follow the white horse of conquest. Destruction is inevitable. I believe there's about 200 years of world peace from the time Jesus was around, uh, around 33 AD, to the recent days where we did not have a major conflict in this world. 200 years. And that wasn't all stretched out over one time. That was a few years here, a few years there, five minutes there, two seconds there. This world is crazy. Verse 4 tells you that destruction, verse 3 is inevitable, but verse 4, destruction is also immense. Did you notice the gravity at which this destruction is going to be upon the earth? The crimson horse here, the red horse, God is giving people over to their evil to harm one another. Literally, the word slay there comes from the same word used of Cain butchering his brother Abel. 
It's graphic. Literal interpretation is like a butcher butchering meat. And we don't need to look long through our history to know that the bloody warfare around us is all around us. In World War II, the technology of the time, the Nazis figured out ways to maximize, to, uh, to, uh, to maximize death to the point no one had ever seen. Matthew 24, Jesus said this in the Olivet Discourse, quote, you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Friend, as I opened up to you, this isn't just the start of some great tribulation, it seems. This has been happening since the time of Christ and before. Certainly, as these seven churches come to be, would you go back to chapter 2, verse 13? I want to remind you of this. Remember what happened to Antipas. Chapter 2, verse 13, if you want to turn your Bibles there or scroll there or mentally note that there. Chapter 2, verse 13, the church at Pergamum. It says, I know, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was what? Killed among you where Satan dwells. Even in the days of God himself working through those churches, there was that. But the gospel spread more and more and more. I mean, do you realize that more Christians have died in the last 150 years than ever before, recorded before? If you've never read Fox's, F-O-X-E apostrophe X, Fox's Book of Martyrs, you're missing out on a uh, a very uh, soul-wrenching book, but a truth about what people did for the sake of keeping the gospel pure among the nations. Jesus reminded us in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who, is, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Look, there are wars and rumors of wars, and there always will be, but the gospel is advancing despite the inevitability and the immensity of what is happening in this world. And you need to know that. This is in your notes. Friends, the pasture lands are not far off. Take heart in these friends these days. The shepherd, that is Christ, has got you. Through death, through murder, through warfare, it will rage on until the end, but lose not heart. You know, about a year and a half ago, it seems so much longer than that in my mind. Our kids are, you know, we're at that stage of life where one year and everything accelerates, right? But in February, late February 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine. And do you remember the, the push of churches to pray for, fly the, the flags? I remember running in Boston Marathon, and there were more Ukrainian flags at points, seriously, than there were American flags in support of that. What happens after time? We move on to the next thing in our lives. We forget about it. There will always be wars. And let me be clear here. This does not mean that we don't pray for wars to end. We just need to pray that we have the grace to sustain through them. It's always going to happen. When sinful men and sinful women have power, the gospel will go forth, but wars and conflicts are going to bring untold heartache and suffering to the people in them, around them, and who hear about them. But I want you to know our pasture lands are not far off. The green grass of Psalm 23 Christian is coming. But you're going to have immense wars, and you're going to have the inevitability. They're going to happen. The gospel will go forth. Wars will rage. Look at the third seal here, the black horse of famine. Famines will last until the end. Number three, famines will last until the end, verses 5 and 6. And he says, and it happened as he opened the third seal, 
I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse and its rider and a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, and note the three things he's saying here, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Let's break that down. What's happening here, first off in verse 5, is that famine is unstoppable. Famine is unstoppable. As Christ opens the third seal again, as he, as he brings that to bear, he shows us the command that is happening. Famine is unstoppable. That is, John looks and beholds a black rider, and on that black rider, he carries some scales. And you know that scales were often used in those days to weigh things, and they are today. Uh, we sort of do that today. We put them up in the scales on, at Walmart or Hy-Vee or Price Shop or wherever you buy. But Christ has released his horse, and no one or no thing can bring it to bear. No one can stop it. And he, he's weighing in the balances the famines and the, and the lack of food that are coming, whatever that may mean. And we'll try to break that down. Verse 5 reminds us once again that God is sovereignly ordaining these days. May I remind you guys that if our country sinks or it prospers, God is still the one behind it. Acts 17, go read about Paul who said he's determined the boundaries of our habitation and the places we should be. It's always there. But I want you to see secondly here, verse 6, famine will be not only unstoppable, it'll be unbreakable. Unbreakable. You see, note those three things. It says a denarius for a quart of wheat, a denarius was a day's wage. And they would go and work. They'd get one denarius for the day. And often, they'd work from sun up to sundown. It makes you, makes you appreciate uh, having shorter days to work, I guess, in some parts of the world. But they'd get one day's wage. And that one day's wage would buy a quart of wheat. You'd work one day to buy your food for one day. Does that make sense? And that's how it would play to be. And you'd work all day just to get your daily bread. Or if they were out of quarts of wheat, you could get three quarts of barley. Three quarts of barley, which is less desirable to eat. That's usually what the animals ate, by the way, were about the same effect as that. So those three quarts would feed you for three days. And if you're wondering what the inflation is, it's somewhere here between 8 and 16, based on the prices of Jesus' day. But I want you to see here, this is not a total famine. It's a partial one. And in fact, Jesus would have this happen in Matthew 24. When the, when the churches heard it, they would be last in line, probably to get relief from it. It doesn't say it's, it, it's going to completely be there all the time. It's a partial famine. But in those days, to get your bread, you had to be someone who would take some incense, throw it in a fire, and say, Caesar is Lord. And if you remember back to our study of Revelation 2 and 3, there were churches, especially at the church of Sardis, who were part of what was called the trade guild. And the trade guilds would worship, you may recall, false gods. And to be a part of that trade guild and keep your union card status in your job, you had to worship these false gods. Some of them were sexually immoral. Some of them were pagan. They would just simply do all sorts of terrible things. But can you imagine throughout history, sometimes the last people to receive the food are Christians themselves? Why? because they're the very last ones to bow the knee to whoever says bow the knee to to get that food. And Christians, I want to tell you something. If you think this isn't going to happen in our day, don't kid yourself. There may be a day and a time in our age where you are required to get food in a way 
that perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, I'm not talking about a mark or some chip from the Left Behind series, you know, put into your head so that the mark of the beast, no, I'm not talking about that. Just simply to get your food. For being a Christian, you may be denied. Now, we live in America, and we have it all, but I think this last part of verse 6 speaks to us a lot more. What's that phrase mean there? Do not harm the oil and the wine. You know, in difficult days, the wealthy have a very kind of a, a buffer between them and everybody else. Their wealth is still worth enough, even in inflation, to keep their stocks afloat. And what he's saying here is that you may look at them and say, you may look at these rich people during that famine and say, look, I want to be like you. And he's saying, no, don't envy their position. This famine is going to hit everybody. It's going to hit the rich. It's going to hit the poor. It's going to hit the middle class, the, the, the blue collar, the white collar, the Republican, the Democrat, the in-between, churches, not churches. It's going to hit everyone. But you may have a store somewhere, and you may even say, what do I need God for? I've got this covered. And this is just a great reminder to us that everything we go through, we need God's help to provide it. Pray this day for your daily what? Bread. How easily we forget that in America where we can just go and buy like 20 loaves of Walmart bread, which used to be 69 cents, by the way. It's $1.29 for white loaf. Inflation. But it's going to hit. Friends, we ought to work for peace. We ought to work to stop human suffering, especially in the way of uh, food shortages. But we do not need to calculate every famine in the world as a sign of the end times. This is something that's been happening for every church, for every age. But I want to tell you where the greatest famine is. If I can spiritualize this for a second, there is no famine more severe than the famine of hearing the word of the Lord in most places. The famine that is unbreakable, the famine that is unbearable, is the famine that most people don't realize they need the most of, the spiritual food of God's grace. This black writer who comes and brings with him a physical famine, but also in the days across all ages, there has been a spiritual famine. Why is it that a guy who says, I can't sit through church because it's so boring, can sit at Chiefs Stadium and cheer and do that for the rest of his life, but he can't do it for the things of God? Because he doesn't know the God of the Bible, for one. Or I can cheer for my kids and give all the praise. Yeah, score that goal. Woo! But when it comes to the things of Jesus Christ, I'm a guy, I don't sing. I don't need to praise God for anything. The greatest thing we need in our land is a famine that only God can break. And that is a spiritual famine. If you pray anything through the study of Revelation, it's that your soul would be aflame for the things of God and you would know more of God than you knew yesterday and you'd live for him today more than tomorrow and so on and so forth. We need a spiritual awakening in our land, in this church and in every church. And if you don't see that, you're missing it. I had a buddy who's going through a pastoral interview process, and they asked him, what's the greatest need of the church today? And he gave the answer is to know God. And they they said, no, the greatest need today is we need to get our numbers back to what they were in 1970. Friends, if your church is more concerned about the butts in the seats that happened some 50 years ago than they are about the people and the famine that is happening spiritually, that's not a church you need to be at or not one they may want you at. I'm grateful that our church here desires the word of God. I don't preach it well all the time. Nelson doesn't. Whoever's up here may not. But we pray whatever crumbs we get out together that we take that and say, Lord, thank you that you even gave us the scraps off the table. Because there is a famine that we need more than anything. Last one is this. 
Seal number four, there is the progress of the gospel. Wars will be till the end. The famines will be till the end. But number four, the pale horse, there is a present time marked by death and disease. There is a present time marked by death and disease. In fact, death and disease will be rampant. Look at verses seven and eight. He says, and he opened the fourth seal. I heard, I, John, heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority or a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine, with pestilence. And here's, a, here's an unusual note for you by wild beast of the earth. As with the three previous riders, the Lamb of God has given the command. May I repeat to you the verse I read earlier, Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I want you to see first off here that death will be comprehensive. Death will be comprehensive in verse 8. Remember, all the riders here bring death in some way, shape, or form, but this horse is more ominous. This horse brings within death and Hades. I mean, they're like twin cousins here. Death being that which happens to all men. If you're not a Christian here today, Hebrews 9.27 says, it is destined for a man to die once and then afterwards to face the judgment. And what you need to know is that death will happen to you someday. You may be old, you may be young, you may be in between. But if you do not know Jesus Christ and have trusted him alone for the salvation of your soul, what we're about to talk about is just a smidgening of what is to come. Death is controlled here. Death is controlled, but death is also comprehensive. Remember, Hades is the place of death. It's where the spirits go. It's, it's the place of the dead until the day of final judgment. And the image here of the fourth seal is that through means of murder, wild animals, disasters, death is going to be filled. And that death is one-fourth of the earth. Now, I want you to do your math with me. Let's, let's say there's 8 billion people here. If this is true, and it is the word of God, it must be true. That means that a fourth of the earth is not the total final on the day of judgment. It's a foretaste of it. Two billion people. Death in Hades mentioned here, again, is what Jesus said. He holds the keys to. He's sovereign over death. Revelation 20, 13, and 14, death and Hades gave up their dead, which were in them, and they whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. The summary is, from the days of Revelation, resurrection until the end of Revelation, certainly there has been death in immense proportions. At the hands of Hitlers and Pol Pots and Mussolinis and Stalins, for sure, but at the hands of everyday people doing terrible, terrible things. Some of you heard the story this week in Liberty. It was all over the news, I think, Thursday. One of my running routes, and I know it very well, it's a rural country road, uh, Ruth Ewing Road to LaFriends Road on the way to Stocksdale Park. If you've ever been back that way where Ruth Ewing ends and, 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 and LaFriends turns in, it's a curve and there's a big hill. It's a, runners love the hill and hate the hill at the same time, going up and down. But a lady had broken down, a young lady, 20 years old, had broken down on the side of the road. Y'all heard this story? And a guy who was probably high, just driving around on that back road, and it's hilly, and you cannot see people, just went, they asked him why, because I wanted to. Cops, uh, we found out after the fact, but the cops were all over our neighborhood looking for him, they found him, and they, he just simply said, I did it, I just wanted to. Death and disease will be rampant. People will be sinners. 
But I want you to know that through all this, this has been the lot of churches everywhere. And churches, do you know that Christians for all ages have been the most comfort and the most help in times of need in these days? In the first century when the black plague of its day was going through, do you know who those were who stayed behind to help the people who were sick? Christians. Do you know where most hospitals are around Arab world, Arab, the Arab Muslim world were started by? Christians. Do you know most people who serve in places and with, with situations most people don't want to are Christians? Because we get it. Death is coming, and we want to comfort people, but it's coming. But I want you to know through all this, God is sovereign over all these judgments. God never performs evil, but he is sovereign over evil. And in an ultimate sense, nothing happens outside of his oversight. And as all this death comes, the least, the last question, we'll close with this, the last question that you will have as you have questions about the problem of evil, and there are many questions you have. God, God why did this happen to this, this helpless child here? God, why did they take this young man here and not this wicked man over there? God, why did my friend die of cancer and not this evil guy over here who just takes it away from all these people? And that phrase is not a cop-out. I don't know the ways of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to God. One of the answers to the problem of evil is simply this question. It's not a cop-out. It's not a push the easy button, but it's a real question. Habakkuk had to answer this question. Nahum had to answer this question in the Old Testament. Do we trust God? No matter what happens. What we need to know is that God does good and he does good. And evil is done by those who do evil, but God will punish all evil. These tribulations occurred in the first century. They will occur to us now. But guys, I want to remember the purpose of what it was. God brings these things about to punish rebels and to purify the church. Some of you may know in the study of the end times, there will be a great falling away of many people who profess Christ. And in our days, we've seen many of those. Many people who used to go to church don't. Many people who used to profess Christ don't care. You have family that way. I have family that way. Would you not give up praying for them? Would you not give up loving them, taking care of them, and sharing Christ with them? Because these days we just read about happened in Jesus' day, happened before, and it'll happen until he comes again. Sorry if I spoiled it for you. There's not a, I don't believe a great clock that says seven years and then we're raptured out of here. Guys, I'm going to submit to you, and this may shake you in your boots, I believe we're going to be here through all this stuff. The question is not, why did God not take us out? The question is, what can we do for God to make sure as many people don't have to go through what they will ultimately go through in hell because we're not sharing the gospel with them? That's the bigger problem than my book. If you believe you're going to be raptured out of here, great. You get out of here seven years earlier. But if I'm right and you're wrong, then we're more prepared, aren't we? End of the day, what matters is our phrase, God wins. And that's what we hang our hats on. That's some deep stuff today, isn't it? Would you go back and read Revelation 4 and 5? That'll enliven your soul, and a potluck will help as well. Let's pray together. We love you guys. Let's go before the Lord. Father, we thank you as we wrap up a very difficult section, the tip of the iceberg, Lord, as it is, to what we'll be studying over the next several weeks. Lord, may we not lose heart. May we not lose heart. May we consider once again what was read to us at the very first 
that, oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. We have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray these are not just platitudes or, or talking points or, or, or make us feel good things, the pastor says, but really at the deepest parts of our souls as we look around our lives that are messy, the, the culture's lives that are, that, that are messy too, our church life that is messy, that we know you're working through that mess to bring about rebels coming to you and the purification of your church. Keep it all in perspective for us. Father, may we not rain on the culture so much. We not rag on the culture so much. May we just pray that you make us more like Christ. May we love, may we point people, may we call people to repentance. Father, by your grace. Lord, help us. But we thank you that even though famines and war and death and disease will run rampant, we thank you that you are the one that will see the gospel to go forth forever and ever. That is the great hope of our brother and sister in a faraway land. That's the great hope of us right here in our own land. You are king and you rule. We pray all this today and asking that you give us great grace. In Jesus' name, amen.